Thanks, Lucy, and uh, good day again, friends. <clears throat> uh, you can stay there in Ephesians 5. We're going to jump around a little bit. I'll let you know where we're up to as we go. Uh, we've got a confronting question before us again this week, and it's the question of whether or not Christianity degrades women. It's a very important question. It's a very personal question. Um, It's one that's come to us just a couple of days after we as a nation marked White Ribbon Day. And uh, my hope and prayer is that that's a helpful and not a harmful link for us to make because I'm not um, naive enough to think that the issue of family and domestic violence uh, isn't either a past or a present reality for people in this room. Um, White Ribbon Day is uh, a day that brings out into the open a staggering and an awful reality uh, that probably definitely deserves more than just one day a year to be talked about, don't you think? Um, White Ribbon Day promoted these statistics throughout the week that on average one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner, that one in five women have experienced sexual violence uh, since the age of 15, that one in four women have experienced emotional abuse by a current or a former partner since the age of 15. A staggering and an awful reality that is a scourge on our culture and Um, One of the reasons for mentioning that up front today is to say that we desperately long for this this church to be a safe place, uh, particularly for women who are or who have been victims of domestic and family violence. Uh, We want this to be a place where you know you will be heard and you will be believed when you speak up about what's going on uh, in, in that way. <clears throat> we long for this to be a church where both victims and perpetrators of such um, evil are called to um, repentance and are shown the forgiveness of Jesus and the life and hope that only he can bring and that people would find in this community real help, real hope, and real Christian care. Um, Up on the screen you'll see a website that is called nodomesticabuse.church, which has been put together by our Fellowship of Churches and Anglicare. And it's an important website for all of us because all of us should be aware of that reality and should be equipped at least in some way, in some measure, to help those who need help when we're able to. And this is a great resource for us to to do that, to be equipped to help, to be equipped to care, and to to be equipped to know what family and domestic violence is. Uh, Family and domestic violence is a... Oh, sorry, before I move on from that, um, up on the screen you'll see some contact details, uh, which is a reminder that help is available, uh, that professional help is available, uh, and that there is... Uh, there are multiple places that you can go if, you're, if you are someone who's in a situation where you need help immediately. And again, these are helpful contact sheets for us to have 
in order that we might provide swift, clear and helpful care and support for people when they need it. And um, uh, Jocelyn's going to remind me to email that out to you during the week um, so that we all can all have the resource uh, that Anglicare has put together for our fellowship of churches. Um, it's a sad but true reality of family and domestic violence that we live with in our culture and sadly we live with in our church and we don't just live with that reality in our church because church and culture exist kind of together and uh, the scourge of domestic violence in the culture kind of sweeps in through the doors of the church. It actually is a scourge on the church because far too often uh, there are far too many examples and cases throughout history uh, in the past and in the very recent past where people have used Christian theology uh, to justify their own evil behaviour, to justify even with the words of scripture the degrading of women and the abuse uh, of women. And so it's an important thing that we talk about, not a comfortable thing, but very important thing for us to talk about. One of the things that uh, Anglicare has helpfully done for us in the resource um, of that website and the related material is to put together a resource that highlights the particular verses in the Bible that people um, have historically twisted for their own ends to perpetrate violence against women or to to degrade women, to oppress uh, women. And uh, Anglicare has put together in that resource kind of a, here's how perpetrators of domestic violence use the scriptures and this is what the scriptures mean. And I want us to do something similar together tonight, not to fully kind of wrap our heads around all the issues or to deal to deal uh, comprehensively with the question of whether Christianity degrades women. That's a very big and important conversation that this is simply a beginning kind of point. Um, but what I want us to do is to take two examples of those verses that have been and can be twisted and misapplied and misused and abused to degrade or even uh, to oppress or um, abuse women and to think about them in their context and to think about them in light of God's character and his uh, saving work for us in the Lord Jesus. And so as we kind of take from the beginning of the Bible and uh, the end of the Bible, as it were, um, the, the Bible's teaching about men and women and the value of men and women together, and particularly women, because of our topic tonight. And in the middle, I want us to think about the Lord Jesus as the perfect example of one who um, uh, upholds in his life and in his teaching the broad inclusion and the fierce equality of women uh, in his kingdom and in his world as fellow image bearers and co-heirs of the grace of life. So we're going to start at the beginning and God's good design. These are the three things just for your reference. God's good design, Jesus' perfect example, and the Jesus-shaped pattern, particularly in the marriage relationship. Let's go back to the beginning and God's good design. And we read these, these words from Genesis chapter 2. And you'll remember from the beginning of the Bible and the account of creation, there's a rhythm to it where God creates, uh, God uh, speaks and it was and he sees and it's good and it's good and it's good and it's good. 
And the very first thing that is not good in God's original creative purposes, it is not good, verse 18, for the man to be alone. Therefore, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man and the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Uh, It's striking that it's not good for the man to be alone because it's a picture of the fact that man on his own cannot image God in the world the way God wants humanity to. God says to to humanity to be his image bearers, to reflect his glory in the world, to to be fruitful and multiplied, to to rule the world and to fill the world and subdue it. Man cannot do that on his own. There is something in his humanity that is missing without the woman that God has made in uh, humanity being male and female something that reflects his character and his purposes and his goodness and that is a relational as well as a rational thing uh, that we reflect God's character and his goodness in our relationships as men and women as male and female live out the reality of humanity, the shared humanity, as uh, fellow image bearers of our creator God. And so God says to, uh, the, to, to us that it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that's the bit that sounds degrading, doesn't it? You talk about this broad inclusion and this fierce equality And yet we use the word to speak of the woman that God makes as a helper. It kind of um, uh, conjures up that image of a little kid with a plastic screwdriver trying to help. You know, it's a bit tokenistic and a bit kind of useless off to the side there. Thanks for nothing. (laughs) Thanks for trying. Thanks for coming along for the ride. But that's absolutely not the picture the Bible gives us, particularly because when you step back a little bit and see how the Bible uses that word helper, more often than not, it's applied to God himself. He is the helper. And there's no way that God is a tokenistic helper off to the side, thanks for nothing, thanks for trying. God is the kind of helper who comes to our aid. God is the one who comes to us in our weakness and our helplessness to lift us up. Right? to provide for our needs, to bring, bring us what it is that we need. And it's the same kind of help that the woman is to bring to the man, to come to his aid, to bring what he needs in his state of helplessness, his inability to live out God's good design and God's purposes on his own. The woman is to come alongside and to fulfil that purpose with him. It's a profound compliment to his humanity that she comes to fulfil God's purposes that alone the man cannot do. He's in a state of weakness, he's in a state of incompetence and the provision of the woman is to meet that need, to meet that weakness, to meet that incompetence in order that she might complement his humanity with her humanity, that together they can image forth... Hello. They can image forth God's glory, Right? 
She is the perfect complement who corresponds to him so that together they can rule and care for God's world. Um, There's that beautiful line at the end of Genesis 2 that says that Adam and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There is intimacy. I'm just going to stop and fix this. Good reminder, if you're a solderer and you want to do some soldering, we've got some soldering to be done. Uh, The innocence and the intimacy of the man and his wife who are are naked and not ashamed gets replaced by the the sinful humanity's rebellion against God and the, the curse from God that replaces innocence and intimacy with shame and blame. The shame and the blame that we're all too familiar with, not just in the biblical accounts, but in our own lives and in our own community. The shame and the blame that leaves men and women at odds with one another instead of partnering together as fellow image bearers of the glory of God. And so as we then see the accounts of uh, the Old Testament unfold, can you point to them and find episodes of mistreatment of women, of violence against women, of um, uh, the misuse of power, of exploitation and abuse and even murder of women, mostly at the hands of men. Can you find those episodes in a fallen and sinful humanity, in a culture and a reality of shame and blame instead of innocence and intimacy? Absolutely you can. Time and time again, because the Bible is a warts and all account of God's dealing with this broken and fallen and sinful humanity, bearing all the consequences of rebelling against God and his loving rule and care. But as we meet those accounts, particularly in the Old Testament, never are they condoned as right models of relationships between men and women. It's not the, 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 the prescription for how relationships ought to be, but the diagnosis of the problem that's on view throughout those accounts and those episodes of exploitation and abuse. We see the diagnosis of a rebellious and a broken humanity that reminds us over and over again that this is not God's picture or his design or his intent for human flourishing. And that this humanity, this broken humanity with the shame and the blame instead of innocence and intimacy, longs for a saviour, longs for redemption, longs for the Lord Jesus, who would come into the world to be the perfect example of what humanity was meant to be, the ultimate human, the Son of Man, who would then redeem us from our fallen and sinful state as he gives himself even to death on the cross. And so as we come to think about the perfect example, uh, Peter reminded us last week that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that if the resurrection isn't true, then we're wasting our time. And if we're going to take the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection for what they really are, then we need to listen to the, the testimony of women who were the first on the scene, 
which is a striking and remarkable thing in the gospel accounts, to, to hang on the, on the testimony of women who not only were the first at the empty tomb, they were last at the cross. You see, women who, like Jesus' mother Mary, who alone was the recipient of the news of the incarnation, and thoroughly through, and consistently throughout the gospel accounts, you see women and their broad inclusion and their fierce equality being upheld and demonstrated time and time again in the teaching and the example and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin helpfully surveys Luke's gospel in particular to show Jesus' treatment of women, the fierce equality, the broad inclusion of women as his, as his first followers, as his partners in the gospel. And time and time again, he holds them up as examples of faith, often kind of at the expense of the men who more often than not give us an example of what not to do. Their presence and partnership with Jesus is fundamental to his life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection. And without the presence and the partnership and the testimony of those women, the gospel accounts uh, would be quite hollow. Let's look at one example from the book of Luke when Jesus goes to have dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Have a look up on the screen, you see this account. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And it's this great scene that then unfolds as Jesus takes this, um, this, this gives us this example that he gives over and over again, where he overturns the power dynamic in the room, where he refuses to let this woman be excluded. He refuses to let the Pharisees dehumanise her and shame her and exclude her, not just from the table, but from the presence and the ministry of Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave her in her religious and her cultural shame that Simon wants to point out, that Simon wants to emphasise. Jesus instead takes her from that religious and cultural shame and elevates her to be a spiritual example to say this is the right and appropriate the worshipful response of someone who has thoroughly understood who Jesus is and the enormity of being at his feet and receiving from him the forgiveness and the redemption that she so desperately needs and if Simon had half a brain he would see that he so desperately needs as well. Instead of keeping her in that position of shame and blame, Jesus elevates her to the example. And if Simon had eyes to see, he would see that he had lived a sinful life. And the right place to be in that room is weeping at the feet of Jesus 
worshipping him as the king that he is and receiving from him the forgiveness that all of us need. This picture unfolds time and time again. But the one who in culture is shunned and excluded is recognised by Jesus with full humanity, with full rights as a forgiven sinner and is welcomed at his table and as an heir of grace in his kingdom. Uh, The great mystery writer and one of the first ever women to graduate from the University of Oxford, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote it like this. She said, Perhaps it's no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There had never been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged about them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated either treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about a woman's nature. I love that quote. Uh, And I've asked Jocelyn to come and now share some of her perspective as a Christian woman and an encouragement, again, from the example of Jesus. What does it mean to be a woman? And what does it mean to be a woman when you are one who, are in, who is in Christ? These are questions that I've wrestled with on and off for a long time. Throughout my teens, I was, I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, I just, I struggled with what it meant to be a woman, to be feminine, when I didn't look or feel feminine. I finished growing when I was in year six. So I was this tall when I was 12 years old. Um, I've always been large and loud, and I just didn't fit the picture of what a woman was supposed to look like. It wasn't like the other girls at school. It wasn't like the women that I saw in, on TV or in magazines. Even at church, I felt like I didn't fit the picture of what it meant to be a woman. The women's events that we had at church were flowery and beautiful. They had fashion shows and high teas. I just didn't feel like I was supposed to be there. And the other girls my age at church were into makeup and boys in a way that I just wasn't. So I didn't feel like I fit there either. On reflection, I can actually see that there were a lot of women around me, wonderful women, who lived out their faith in a whole variety of ways. My mum has never been overly girly and has never pushed me to be girly or feminine. And she is a a strong woman and self-effacing. My church owned a gym, which was an unusual position to be in. Uh, And so I actually was surrounded by women who were fitness instructors, who were powerful and fit. 
But I was fixated more on the places where I felt awkward and out of place. My problem, my problem was with my perception of what it meant to be a woman. And that, and that definition was so narrow, it felt like I was just never going to be able to fit into it. But when I looked at the Bible, that narrowness, that narrow picture of womanhood wasn't there. And one of the stories that I've been thinking about recently and reflecting on that gives a totally different picture of womanhood uh, is Jesus visiting the home of Mary and Martha. On first meeting Martha, we see that she is a woman of faith. Earlier in uh, Luke chapter 10, which is where this story is placed, Jesus has sent out the 72 disciples to go and tell the good news about the kingdom of God. And he said to them, when people welcome you into their homes and they feed you, tell them the kingdom of God is near to you. And then, just a few verses later, we come to Jesus entering this village and um, coming across Martha. It says, Luke says to here, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Luke is painting a picture of a, of a woman of faith. She's someone who's waiting for God's kingdom and sees it coming near in Jesus. So she sets about the task of providing food for Jesus and his disciples while Jesus teaches. The kingdom of God is near to Martha. And so you can feel her frustration when she's done this thing that's been commended that her sister Mary won't help her and is sitting along with the men listening to Jesus' teaching. But Jesus, instead of sending Mary into the kitchen to help out Martha, her sister, invites Martha to join Mary and the group who are sitting and listening to his teaching. This is a story that primarily calls all of us to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen uh, to his teaching. Men and women together as disciples of Christ, ready to listen, ready to learn, leaving aside the distractions that pull us away from him. Jesus doesn't primarily see Martha as a woman, but as a disciple. And he cares less about he and his disciples getting the food that they might want and more about Martha receiving life that cannot come by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. In addition to these, this, we see Jesus' love and regard for Martha in the way that he addresses her. Just before this story we read in Luke 10 uh, is the story of the teacher of the law coming to justify himself. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, he, he sees the motives of this man and compares it to the motives of Martha. So instead of the verbal smackdown that the teacher of the law gets coming trying to justify himself, Jesus uh, is gentle with Mary. He redirects her to, so, sorry, with Martha. He redirects her to follow Mary's example. Where she is worried and upset about many things, he has come to offer her peace and joy. Jesus is consistently caring and loving of the women that he encounters in this way, willing to subvert social norms as he interacts with them primarily as disciples and children of God. There are some instructions in the Bible that are given just to women and that there are differences between men and women that are highlighted in the scriptures. What there is not is any definition of womanhood that is narrow or limits the way that might, one might live out 
what it means to be a woman within this scope of what scripture has given us. I'm not saying that gender means nothing. I have been created not just as a human being by God, but as a woman. And the creation account shows that there are differences between men and women, right from the beginning. But so much of our culture and our upbringing and media can shape our perception of what it means to be a woman. And it gets mixed in with our faith until we can't tell the difference between the two. There's nothing wrong with fitting in with the cultural norms as long as they're not contradicting scripture. But the Bible gives us a lot more scope and breadth in living out our womanhood than I think that we find in our culture or in our subcultures. Even more than that, for those of us who are in Christ, our primary identity is not as men or women, but as disciples and children of our Heavenly Father. My gender is far less important than the fact that I am saved by faith in Christ. That's who I am now. That's how I shape the way I act, the way that I see myself, who I'm striving to be. Paul puts it in the most extreme terms in Galatians chapter 3, when he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This isn't Paul attempting to abolish gender or race, but relegating them to a place of secondary significance. Compared to being in Christ, our social standing, our race, our gender, are all, they're left in the dust. We're children of the creator of the world. We are co-heirs along with Christ. We belong to Jesus. What could possibly be more important to my identity than that? Thanks, Joss. It's uh, encouraging, isn't it, to consider the fierce equality and the broad inclusion of uh, women in God's kingdom and in the life and the teaching of Jesus. Uh, but if you can hang with me for a minute, we're going to come to the, uh, the second Bible passage that's been twisted and misused and abused over the years to degrade and to oppress and even uh, abuse women in Ephesians chapter 5. That can feel a little bit, when you go from the kind of broad inclusion and the fierce equality to a verse like, wives, submit yourselves to your husband, it can feel a bit like Paul doesn't use the clutch and has just kind of ground the gears. It's like, how does that even fit with what we've just said and seen in Jesus? But Rebecca McLaughlin, in considering this passage, helpfully refers to it a a little bit like a power line that's grounded in Jesus and runs all the way through the New Testament. This picture of marriage that's meant to be a metaphor for our relationship with God. And so it's not something that runs counter to that fierce equality and that broad inclusion of women, but it's something that's meant to be a beautiful picture of how it's enacted in real relationships, particularly this marriage relationship as a metaphor of Jesus' love for his church and the church's voluntary response of faith and submission to him as saviour and king. Uh, It wouldn't make sense to the logic of the scriptures or the teaching of Jesus 
for a passage like this and an idea uh, like marriage to run counter to what Jesus taught and how he lived. So have a look with me at Ephesians chapter 5, if you can hang with me for just a couple more minutes. We see up on the screen, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery that I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Do you see here that uh, Paul is grounding roles in marriage, in not some in not in some kind of weird gendered psychology that you'd read in a, a psycho- psychology journal or something, but in Christ-centered theology. The pattern, the example, the grounding for the marriage relationship is Jesus' self-sacrificial giving of himself at the cross, laying down his life and the ch- for the church, his bride, his people. And so men are called to love their wives in the same kind of way, to serve them with sacrificial care that invents and enacts as many kinds of love as possible. And so when it gets to saying, wives, submit to your husbands, that is the decision that they're being called to make. The voluntary commitment to a husband who is sacrificially caring for her and inventing and enacting as many kinds of sacrificial love as possible. The call for a wife to submit to her husband is a call for her to celebrate and to reinforce that kind of loving care. A call to submit to her husband is never a call to endure abuse. Never a call to endure abuse. It's never a call to disengage your brain. It's never a call to prioritise your husband's needs and interests. Rather, the husband is called to prioritise his wife's needs and interests. To sacrifice himself for her. To build her up. The fact that husbands are called to love their wives with Christ-like care That was a wild idea in the first century. To say to to men that your wife is not just a piece of property. She's not just an object for your use and your abuse. But you are to love her and care for her and build her up in self-sacrificial ways. Well, that is a subversion of male privilege. 
That is wild in the first century, just as it is, I think, in the 21st century. And the fact that Paul then addresses women is just as wild and says to them, you are a decision-making partner in this marriage relationship. And so he addresses women and says to them, the decision for you to make as a partner in this marriage relationship is to, to submit yourself to that kind of loving care of your husband. The fact that Paul even addresses the wives is a picture of it, the, the broad inclusion, the fierce equality that the Bible envisages between men and women partnering together as fellow image bearers of the glory of God and co-heirs of the grace of life that is in the Lord Jesus. And so to ever think that you can claim biblical support for the kind of evil behaviour that is family and domestic violence, to oppress, to objectify, to abuse a a woman. Well, it's just abhorrent. It is evil. It is to miss what the text says and it is to totally miss who Jesus is and how he loves. There is no place for that kind of behaviour in the church or in the world, but especially in a Christian marriage and a Christian family, which is what we are here at church. Competition and control are always going to disrupt and distort relationships and the partnership of men and women in the gospel, in the church and in the home. But rather, men and women are meant to partner together to combine in such a way to emphasise, to enhance the qualities of each other in order that we might live out the fullness of our humanity together. Rebecca McLaughlin says it like this. She says, The text does not say that the husband's the head of the family and thus thus the one whose needs come first, whose career must be prioritised, whose comfort is paramount. In fact, Ephesians 5 is a withering critique of traditional gender roles. In the drama of marriage, the wife's needs come first and the husband's drive to prioritise himself is cut down with the brutal acts of the gospel. This is no return to Victorian values or 1950s norms. Do you hear that, blokes? The husband's drive to prioritise himself is cut down with the brutal acts of the gospel. There is no place or disparaging women, particularly your wife. There is no place to, for objectifying women, for being violent towards them in any way, shape or form. And we long for this church to be a place where the beauty of Jesus and the shape of the gospel is on display as men and women partner together in ministry And as Christian marriages are played out each and every day in our homes, we long to be a church that places on display God's good design, Jesus' perfect example, and the Jesus-shaped pattern that God has given for human flourishing and for his glory. Does Christianity degrade women? It has. And we need to repent.
but it doesn't fit with God's good desire, with Jesus' perfect example and the Jesus-shaped pattern for our flourishing, our partnership together and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for who you are and for your extraordinary creativity and beauty and goodness and power on display in creation, the way that you have made us male and female, one humanity, to image forth your glory in complementary and equal ways. We thank you for the fierce equality and the broad inclusion that Jesus demonstrates and pray that we would follow his example and more so we would sit at his feet together as men and women partner together in the cause of the gospel and seek to reflect in our homes the beautiful pattern of the gospel that is for our flourishing, for your glory and for the hope of the world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.